to the Lady Preacher Podcast, a podcast for the progressive Christian, where we talk about an all-loving God, an embodied Christ, and an ever-moving spirit. Dive right in as we wrestle with what it means to live out our faith in the world. Hello, hello, my friend. I am so glad you're here today so that I can introduce you to an amazing human. Today, I had the absolute privilege of sitting down with Reverend Dr. Chris Davies, who is on the national staff of the United Church of Christ as the program manager of Congregational Assessment, Support, and Advancement. Per her bio, Chris is a queer femme, a local beer enthusiast, and a creative networker of communities. I had an amazing time talking with her and Chris's passion for justice and Jesus really came through as she talks about her mission to queer the church and really help the church as a whole really live out its call as the body of Christ in the world. One thing I want to be sure to mention is that Chris is the founder and curator of the Queer Clergy Trading Cards, which is a project bringing visibility to queer clergy using humor and irreverence to help change the conversation, highlighting the common awe and absurdities in faith work. And I'll be sure to link that in the show notes so that you can find out more. Okay, my friends, let's dive in. And I hope you really enjoy this conversation with the wonderful and brilliant Reverend Dr. Chris Davies. Hello, Chris. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm wondering, can you just start us off by telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do, what is your ministry? Origin questions are always interesting, right? Where do you start? Mm-hmm. I am a queer white femme who leads the faith info team at the National Setting of the United Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. I am a, an advocate and I guess people call me creative a lot, which is really fun for me because mm-hmm. I'm a maker and I like to make things. I am a queer farmer in Cleveland. Life is good. I'm happy to be here. Like, <laughs> all of those I am statements will come out throughout. Mm, yeah. In terms of your family and your lineage, can you talk a little bit about your grandmother? I know that you wrote once that your grandmother taught you how to be a Christian. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about that. What is it your grandmother taught you? So my father's mother... Carolyn Davies is is long gone, but she used to say to me, I will be praying for you all of the time. And then she'd get closer and like, look into my eyes and be like, even when I'm dead, so, <laughs> yeah, I feel it grandma. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but she was this kind she's, she's an interesting character and I, I'm learning lessons about her life. The more that I focus into that. She was like a charismatic Christian, really leaning into the evangelical places. But at the same time, I remember her talking about marching for Roe in Hartford, like when we were still talking about Roe v. Wade. Mm. Well, we still are, let's be clear. Right. But, you know, so she's got this like abortion activist, 70s CR circle, feminist orientation as a social worker and also this like very 
very dedicated Christian, you know, and partially of that was because she liked the people in the churches mm. and she really brought faith into my life, but she dedicated her life to, to helping people, particularly people who are living with trauma. She was a social worker and did that for a long time. So I feel like, you know, some of the trauma informed orientation towards life that I have comes from her, you know, grounded in faith and comes from you know, my dad, who's also a therapist and her son. So it's, you know, it's all these streams going back to who am I? Mm. Yeah. On my mother's side, that's all deeply Irish. And when I say that, I don't mean, I mean, like my grandparents came over and my mother spent time over there and they're very grounded. Like they're very connected into the Irish Catholic culture in that way. So that's been part of part of my own Christianity has been, how do I look into the Celtic roots? You know, some of that was like, colonized by Catholicism in that way. Mm-hmm. But how do how do I make sense of this ancestral lineage of faith that includes both these elements of charismatic Christianity, these elements of like Celtic Christianity, mm. and, you know, even from like congregational roots on my father's side, and then these Catholic roots on my mother's side, and how does this all come together in what for me is now a super liberatory faith of connection with and politic alongside the people who are at the who who are most and multiply oppressed? Yeah, that's beautiful. How would you say that has informed the the work you do in your ministry? Like when you go and talk with churches or church starts, how does all that flow through you into what you offer others in your ministry? You know, it's, it's such an interesting time to be part of an institutional faith, Mm. you know, and the way that I hold my call in the institution is not my faith. Mm -hmm. And if I conflate the two, I will burn out. And I will not survive this. What I mean by that is God is bigger than, and my faith is bigger than the structures that humanity has created for ourselves to contain them. Mm -hmm. And that includes churches and the institution and the national setting and all of these places and all these structures that even like we are birthing into being. Yeah. So when I, when I think about my work, I feel so called to help midwife in the reformation. What is it that our great, great, great grandchildren will need to help make meaning out of their lives? And how am I responsible to help keep that present in our day to day? How, how do I hold that so that, you know, the legacy that has been that has allowed me to have the kind of faith that I have continues to evolve. I just, I think it's, it's a, a wonderment of faith. It's a time of a wonderment of faith. Mm, absolutely. Well, I think right now, especially a lot of people are struggling with that, the love for the church building, the idol. Yes. The idol. Right. <laughs> exactly. I know. And you know what? Let me be clear. There is so much love that people can put into their community and it gets transferred right onto the building and it is worth naming. Mm. And those buildings are really clear anchors, aren't they? Yes. (laughs) And I know that there are some folks listening who are like, oh, we got to have a trustees meeting and figure out what to do with this roof again, but there's no money. And do we choose the building or the pastor? And how are we going to do this? And like, Mm. that is not a unique conversation. 
Right. There are, of course, there are places where that is not true. And there's thriving ministries that the building helps inspire, but the building is not the end, but the means to the face. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about how you said, and this is down the same vein, but in a sermon, you said that um, as much as I love the United Church of Christ and the institutionalized churches that we have made homes, I love Jesus Christ more. And you bring up the question, who do you serve? And I think this, it speaks to this, like, how are we serving Christ and Christ's people as opposed to the church? You know, I see those things get conflated so often, Mm. you know, and it really is a, a, who do you serve? Why are you doing this? We have this, um, in a queer community and in Christian community, there is an overlapping narrative of coming out. Um, and if you are a pastor, you will recognize it when people say, well, what's your call story? Mm. And there's a similar, in my experience of queer community, which is grounded in, you know, my life, my, my, the people that I spend time with, which, you know, is New England and activist oriented in a lot of ways. My experience has been that the coming out narrative is almost the same. And I think that there's an invitation to, to people who are listening, to people who are in the pews, who are not necessarily called into that conversation on such a consistent way to answer the question for themselves, for yourself, right? Like, why is it that you chose to go to church? Like, why is it that you choose to have faith? Because it's a choice, right? You know, just like so many other things, just like being in relationship. Why do you wake up every day and say, I choose to continue to do this? Mm, Because it requires a lot of work. And all of those things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Faith is work. Right. Why do we choose it? What's, you know, and it's not necessarily uh, um, a personal payoff. For me, it's a communal understanding is that the the world that we are in, the faith that I have, the way in which um, the way in which I am called to contribute into this world so that it is a world that I am co-creating alongside God towards justice and towards equity and uh, alignment with a vision of the kingdom here that, you know, that vision drives me. Mm. Whereas I think Grace Lee Boggs said and, and, and elevated through uh, someone whom I would call a modern prophet and Adrian Marie Brown, we cannot create the world we cannot imagine. Mm. Faith, for me, is an, is an imagination of a world that is just. And so that's my pathway. Faith is my pathway to that. I mean, that's, I serve a vision of a world where all people are free. And I don't just mean that in terms of, um, you know, I mean that in terms of free from um, racialized capitalism that forces us all to think through, think about our lives in terms of how much money we can get or not get in order to have access to things that are basic and things that are necessary for people to be. You know, I dream of a world that has abundance, abundance of love, abundance of of food, abundance of joy, abundance of resource and access and joy, like all of these things that contribute into um, wholeness that are not metrics for how we describe a community or a person's wellness. Right. Well, and you talk about this vision and how that's part of what drives you. And I think that's an important piece that a lot of 
churches and faith communities, and I would say even organizations sometimes miss is like, they're like, okay, we've got a great mission statement. What is our vision? And it's not always super forward thinking. But when I look at organizations that have a profound vision, it's always something that feels completely unattainable, but what I desire and what I want, like water for all people. And while that feels really far off, like that's the vision we are working towards. That's what Jesus called us to. And I talk about this almost, I feel like I say it every Sunday in church, but when we pray the Lord's prayer, when we say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, like we, that's what we're praying for is that vision. And I think it's a unique moment too, uh, where the technological advances allow a global conversation. Mm. Um, and I think about things like the UN, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. You know, there's 19 goals very clearly outlined that these are the metrics that we are going to align alongside for a world that is, that is abundant for all. Mm-hmm. Those are, I mean, those are worth looking into for what, what your church or what other churches are doing is like, how are we aligning? Because they are clearly aligned with our Christian, with Christianity. Mm-hmm. In the it, Christian, let me be clear. <laughs> they align with a Christian a Christianity that is attentive to a liberatory message of gospel. They are not aligned with the evangelical Christianity that's intertwined with the state, because mm. that in itself is another tool of oppression. Right. Oh, I have so many thoughts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I I feel like so often that the church is used, like you were saying, as another tool for oppression. It's something that has been used to, to keep people down and, and keep them oppressed. But that's so opposite of what Jesus called us to do and be right. Yes. Let me, I'm going to tell you a story if that's okay. Absolutely. (laughs) The, so my cousin uh, just graduated from high school and I'm so proud of her. She, um, we haven't always been the closest growing up And to get to a point where at 2020, you are a graduate in the middle of all of this Mm -hmm. and in the middle of all of the other pressures that are apparent, the, you know, I just was thinking a lot about how, what is it that I would want that I would want people to hear about faith because she's, she's, she and her family are very faithful faith and this world and right now. And one of the things that I wrote to her in like a graduation letter was these two concepts. The first is hold faith tightly. Christianity is the call of our ancestors to bring away, bring us a way to make meaning in this world. It's been passed generation to generation, person to person. Each generation makes the faith our own in conversation with what has gone before. So I said to her, you and I have received the faith from our parents who received it from theirs and on and on and on. This also means, and this is the second part, hold faith lightly. Christianity has done as much harm as good in this world. We've colonized and killed cultures of people and killed people literally for not believing exactly as we do. And we are still doing that in the world today. And here we are often using the words and texts that have been translated through primarily men in power without holding them to the context of their own time, which is like, who decided what is in the Bible? You know, men, Mm -hmm. most likely. And a lot of times in in clear ways that we can see in our histories, men, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, one of the hardest shifts of adulthood is holding these multiple realities at the same time, you know, binary thinking, good, bad, right, wrong, good, evil, um, good, heaven, hell, all of that, it, it, it won't continue to serve us. Mm. We're not made that simply. And God isn't that 
easy. So I was th- thinking about this, thinking about this aloud in writing and with her, <laughs> with mm. her in mind, just like thinking about this conflation of Christianity and the state, particularly in this movement moment, right? Where there's governments and policings and city councils, many of which are held up by white evangelical Christianity yep, and are not held accountable to the tenets of faith. Um, those systems, we you know, we know have been designed to keep poor people poor and black and brown people down poor and quiet. Christianity is still upholding that state in so many places. And the clearest indicator would that there's like the clearest indicator that there is unacknowledged and un like the conversation hasn't been had is, is like when there's a flag at the front of the church. Mm -hmm. And I know that I'm saying that. And then there's some people going, ah, Yep, But that's not a way of saying, you know, remove it and don't think about it. It is a way of saying, why is it at the front of the church? Why is that honor put in the place of our faith? And what systems is it upholding by being present? Have the conversation. You know, so thinking about that in, 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 in ways of what is faith right now? Hold faith tightly and hold faith lightly. We've got a lot here that we need to make meaning of this world. And we have a lot that we need to look back on, acknowledge what our faith has done and our acquiesce, like our willingness to look at faith without critique allows to continue to happen. Right. And when I say, I want to be clear too, when I say R, I am thinking specifically of white Christianity. I'm thinking specifically of some of the mainline denominations, one of which is the United Church of Christ that has a history of being in these conversations. Absolutely. And upholding harmful systems, like you were saying. Yeah. How do we shift out of the complacency that can happen in church? Oh, yeah, right. In seminary, there's this thing that they always tell us, right? You know, our job as pastors is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I've heard multiple times. And context is everything, right? I, I think about that a lot in the midst of everything, too, is that like, I, I think people, including me, like I'm not taking myself out of this conversation. You know, there are ways in which church becomes something we do instead of faith being something we have and something we are. Right. For me, it's, it's a a spirit movement, right? Like I think of Genesis and that first few verses where the spirit hovers over the deep, over the chaos, and then dives in and causes this co-creation. And I think that there's an inbreaking happening right now that's that's pushing us into movement and calling us to like get off our butts and do the work. Like if you haven't been doing the work, now is the time to do the work. And that to me, it connects to when you were saying for some folks, now is the time to rest. And I think of that phrase of Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is what they are called to do. And it's, it's time for those of us whose yoke hasn't been weighing us down for centuries to move forward. And like you were saying, to follow, because I think the people we have been following have been the ones who have been doing the oppressing. Yeah. And you know, we, you and I are white women. Mm-hmm. We are white. We are white women in ministry. historically white women align with race and not gender. So this is also a moment of reckoning for folk like you and I. 
Mm-hmm. How is it that we can acknowledge that historically our people have aligned with power and race and not with lines of gender? I learn so much through um, reproductive justice um, and that movement right now. And I think about that as led by Sister Song, as led by women of color, as led by, you know, folks who are saying, you know, and, and it's not, when I say reproductive justice, I don't only mean access to abortion. You know, there, the definition of Sister Song and reproductive justice is, is about this, this very aligned with this motion of abundance. It's not necessarily about can you get an abortion or not. It's about how are we creating communities where the choice is so clear that it is actually a choice. You know, how are we creating communities that are that are safe to live in? They're not toxic as a result of the chemicals that are being put in the air. Communities that are safe to parent in because there are resources attached to the growing up of children. Like, how are they safe to be in relationship in? How do we have resources for partnerships that may not be healthy for both or all parties within them? Um, how are we creating those resources in a systemic way, in an intersectional way? And that includes a choice to parent or not parent. That intertwined, intersectional breaking in of spirit. For me, again, I put it into my own faith language. The breaking in of spirit in those movements is one that I've learned so much from. Right, right. And it it points to how interconnected it all is and who the leaders behind so many of these movements have been. I feel like Black women have always, always been at the forefront And I would say even especially Black queer or Black trans women have been at the forefront of all of these movements and haven't necessarily been given the credit that they deserve and have been put down by the white women who are nearby. Yeah, put down or, you know, their words have been rephrased and we've said them. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that I've been guilty of that too. I'm learning every day. You know, and I will say that the the best things that I have learned have been not the best things. That's too superlative. Um, So many of the things that I have learned have been through people willing to teach and, and, you know, women of color who have gifted me with that learning, especially when it's critique. Mm. Um, You know, that's a gift. If someone is willing to tell you something like that, it's a gift. Oh, there's so much more to learn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's it's like my Angelou said, when when we know better, we do better. And I I hope I'm always willing to learn so that I can know better and do better each day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we listen to the wisdom of folks like um Ella Baker. And I don't I'm I, you know, I also I I'm learning so much just by this goes back to like the movement is possible now because of these technological connections and innovations that are present in the world now that weren't 50 years ago. You know, Mm. how is it that I can be connected to um, people doing justice work on the West coast who can call for something incredible to happen. There's international movements happening now that weren't, that couldn't have happened before. I mean, even from, (laughs) I'm thinking about, Oh, um, when Angela Davis talked about Ferguson to Palestine, right? So like in the uprisings in Ferguson, Palestine, the Palestinian activists were saying, here's how you do, like, here's how you prevent tear, like the tear gassing because the, the tactics are all connected. Israeli armies trained over here. The tactics are connected. 
so when we know that the tactics are connected, the, like, and then the people are connecting just as well. So Palestinian activists are telling Ferguson activists, this, here's some tips and tricks. And then I saw that happening again in these uprisings where BLM rallies and, and, and um, gatherings and, and such are happening. And then there's, you know, protests happening in Hong Kong and these videos coming out saying like, here's how you, you know, put, <laughs> mm-hmm. use, use the traffic cone to hold down the tear gas. You know, just like boop, 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 boop. Here's the system. Here's it. Here's how it goes. It's just like so. These mutual networks of learning all over the world in an international movement that is absolutely stunning to watch alongside and participate in. Participate in as is appropriate for our, for our role. It's it's a knowing. Um, I, I'm getting all excited about it because you know I, I you know I'm driven by the dream of a world that is that is full of abundance and peace, and this is part of that midwifing. You know, these, this is all part of it. And, you know, it's hard to step out of the, it's hard to step out of the individual experience and see it as the collective movement. And again, wisdom leaders from all over are, are, are granting and gifting us with language and ways to see that, like Adrian Marie Brown and Valerie Carr and, you know, I, Tracy Blackman too, like working, working with her and learning from her has been incredible. Um, I'm so grateful for like all the folks who are, pouring in so that others may witness awake and work for the just world. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I, as you were talking, it made me think of the way that Mary, Jesus's mother was able to shift from the singular to the collective. Like when she received that call to birth this new life into the world. That was a choice that wasn't just for her. Like she clearly knew that there would be suffering in that, in that line for her, but, but she had this opportunity to birth something greater that would be greater than herself. And it connects me back to what you were saying earlier too, about thinking about the legacy, like what is my role now so that I can create this wave and like push forward that stream in this river of justice for the generations to come and the choice that Mary had to make and the way that she embodied that in a way that so many of us can learn from. I want to pivot. You, um, you had a job interview for your current position at the national level of the UCC and they asked you what you were excited about. I'm just going to let you answer that question. What did you say? And, and <laughs> what did it mean to you? Oh, <laughs> I, so I remember being in that room and being like, I don't know why I'm here. Imposter <laughs> <laughs> syndrome is a thing. And yes. like, as, as women and as lady preachers, we know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but when John Dorauer asked me that, I think it was him. I said, I, you know, I really want to queer the church. Like I feel called to queer the church. And what I mean, what I meant by that and what I continue to mean by that is that um, I define queer as a productive disruption that engages bodies and ideas outside of the normative. The normative, so now, like, in thinking about that, the normative is this white, cis, male, you know, monogamous, married, 2.5 kids, pastor, doing things in an institution that promotes the community's, like, well, well, 
niceness. Let me say mm. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We want to be nice with one another and conflict avoidant and blah, 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 blah. And like, um, I'm sorry if I just described your church um, to anyone listening. <laughs> and that hasn't worked. Mm. You know, there, what the world is collectively saying now is that that normative, you know, and not necessarily the specifics of everything I just named, but the normative of white supremacy, the normative of the disconnection from our own ancestry, the normative of the disconnection from um, the impact of our spending, you know, it has become in service to the coin and in service to oppression of so, so many people so that a few can rise. Mm. Um, It hasn't worked. You know, it hasn't, what it continues to do is to widen, you know, widen this reality of the people who, you know, there's a, in order for our system to work, there's a certain percentage of people that will not only be below the poverty line, but below the line of any income at all. Mm. You know, and if we're talking about metrics and money, which is one that people know how to talk in, there are people who will never break the debt ever. And that's what's required in order for this to work. So when I think about queering the church, I think about how are we looking at all of those systems and, and radically redefining them in alignment with, um, in alignment with queer politic. Um, and that's not necessarily queers and LGBT. Like I am, I am lesbian, not identity politic, but queer politic is in the ideas outside of the normative that decolonize that connect with with each other and with our roots that take responsibility for impact and imagine a way together of a future that is co-created alongside a God that wants justice and equity for all people. Right. What a powerful vision to have. I feel like it's calling the church to a way it can imagine, but doesn't quite yet know. Mm -hmm. And ironically, this is our faith. Like, mm. That's faith right there. Mm-hmm. That's faith. Yeah. We are calling each other to something we can kind of imagine, but don't yet know. Mm-hmm. So my, um, I did doctor- doctoral work and in queering proclamation. How do we, how do we take that, which the, the way in which the word is proclaimed into the world, how do we queer that? Um, or not necessarily how, but like, exploring that concept. And one of one of those, one of the big things that I landed on in my dissertation was about queer, queer orientation um, and queer eschatology. So eschatology is the end, you know, it is the end times. It's both individual mm-hmm. in terms of like what happens after I die, but communal, what do we vision for this world at the, at, for that day, you know, that the theological that day and queering eschatology is uh, never is an ever receding horizon, which means that what we know now, what we are attentive to in movement, how we know how to show up alongside people in terms of race and class and ability 
ability and gender and sexual orientation and 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 all these ways in which our difference inspires a beautiful vision of the divine we didn't have access to without the other like that eschatology will shift we will get to a point where we look back at what we're doing now and saying god we didn't know any better Mm. we will continue to learn the horizon of what justice is will continue to shift and we got to be committed to continue to move there is not an arrival point and that's hard for that is hard for people who are socialized in whiteness yeah well and i think so often in our culture we think in terms of achievements and steps right like this is the reason why we have graduations for preschool and kindergarten and fifth grade and eighth grade and you know all these things because we think in terms of take these steps achieve it's a linear thought mm-hmm. so whose thought is linear no one <laughs> especially not gods right yeah uh in cleveland i my queer fam like my wife is my wife is laura she's amazing and there are two other women that are in our chosen queer fam or but really four um and so with two other women, we decided that we were going to buy, buy a house together because we believe in shared property as a communal vision, communal value. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had this, it took me, it took me a year and I attribute this to my own socialization and whiteness. Um, but it took me a long time to get used to the patterns of conversation that were nonlinear that allowed us to accomplish this goal. Mm. I mean, a year, a couple of months. But what I mean by that is we, and this happens in churches too. And I had so much more grace for it when it was happening with my family. So this is also a learning for me too, is that I see this happening. Doing this process with, with my family here in Cleveland allowed me to have grace for our systems because what I witnessed internally, like in the small, small is all, Adrian Marie Brown would say, what I witnessed is in the small is that, you know, we had circular conversations. They were not linear. There were not action steps at the end. And that's all helpful to get something done. But when it came to it, it was just like, we'd make a decision and we'd say, great. And the next week we'd revisit the conversation and make the same decision. We'd say, great. And the next week we'd like, you know, we keep having these circular conversations. Sometimes we'd revisit the decision we made the week before and change our mind collectively. Mm -hmm. And it was this like moment of like internal, how am I going to hold this? And also, oh my God, how incredible is it that there's this community of people that allow this kind of grace and growth in between each conversation. And I will say that I was only able to do that with them because of the, um, because of the trust and the covenants that we'd established, like, you know, both spoken and unspoken. Um, and that to see that kind of process work kind of scale up needed those I would say needs that same kind of like boundaries trust and grace for one another Mm. and that's not always present in some of the other places it can be but that's part of the vision too right is that we get to a place where we can have these huge conversations on a systemic level where there's grace trust trust and boundaries in those conversations otherwise what you're going to get is somebody who doesn't have the self-awareness to notice that he's taking up all the space in the conversation standing and pointing at someone saying well you don't understand that you know that that's what we get without the boundaries the grace and the trust Mm. Right. 
I, my mind is going back to all of these various council meetings I have attended where there have not been clear boundaries or there have not been trust or there has definitely not been grace and what a powerful thing to hold. And it, it speaks to the importance of care for others. We hold boundaries because we both care about ourselves and we care about others. And we have grace because we need it and others need it too. That's what creates space for mutual trust and mutual understanding. And it allows room for growth. Yeah. And like we've already spoken about, I I believe that it's in those places of growth that God can show up. If I'm completely content and comfortable then I'm not giving God an opportunity to break in. I am not opening myself to the wisdom of the divine that wouldn't otherwise arrive. I can Mm. be content in my gratitudes and God needs an opportunity to break in. If all I have is I'm so grateful, I'm so privileged, this is great, my life is wonderful, like I can't believe my life is so good, then that doesn't just let me sit there. It inspires me to action So that those for whom that is not true can have access to the same things that I have been granted by, by, you know, not by God and blessing, as some might say, but by virtue of the systems of oppression and the hierarchies that, that, that have been present in my, you know, in my ancestry and in my families that have allowed me to get to this point. What I mean by that specifically is that, you know, I I spoke at the beginning about my Irish, my family came over from Ireland. My grandfather, who is, he's not with us anymore, um, but he immigrated here and then he was a carpenter and he built houses and he built, he built the house that I grew up in. And I can say that and everyone nods along and says, yeah, that's great. But the thing that is not said is that he profited off of the GI bill in order to build houses for white people. Mm. So that says to me, that is in my ancestral history. You know, that is my grandfather. Yes, he was able to build all of this in such a way that I can thrive at the expense and in conversation with systems that have pushed other people so that they can't. I'm I'm thinking about um, the research that was done recently that the average white family has a certain kind of like a certain kind of wealth. The average black family, it would take, I think, 218 years to access the kind of wealth that the average white family has today. So to me, again, that speaks of like, what is the work right now? You know, how do I look at the system of wealth inequality and do some intentional redistribution? Right. And it's saying yes to doing hard things. I feel like so often we avoid stepping into unknown territory because we're afraid of doing the hard thing. It is so much easier to sit in my comfort, in my privilege, and just continue to benefit from the system. It's much scarier to step out into the wilderness and say, things need to change. In talking about systems, I've heard so many people say, Black women especially say recently that the system isn't broken. It's working exactly as it was intended. Mm -hmm. And so what is going to require for justice is it makes me think of the Tower of Babel. It is going to have to crumble. Yeah. And that's terrifying, Mm -hmm. especially if the system has been one that we have been taught we can put our faith in. It's no accident that faith and these systems are intertwined. Mm -hmm. Okay. Before we hop into 
our rapid fire seven questions. I did want to ask one question because it's, Absolutely. it's the, the mission of this podcast. It's why I started it because I was hearing some bad theology preached on podcasts and I was like, okay, we need a different lens. Yeah. I'm curious if you have a piece of theology that was given to you that you have had to rework and reimagine, break it down to allow it to breathe new life. I mean, immediately I think about the texts of terror. You know, I immediately, I think about the biblical texts that have been used to oppress queer people and, mm-hmm. and, and lesbian and gay and bisexual folk. Um, trans, trans theology is present in a different way, um, is often conflated. So that's why I'm separating them in this response in terms of LGBT is not just one, one, one identity, but I'm thinking about, you know, how, when we think about what they said was abomination and how we've translated that word in Hebrew to mean abomination was a translated decision made by men mm. and conservative evangelical men. We don't even know what that word means. You know, and that I, I, I remember I read, I, was, I read uh, Nancy Wilson's Outing the Bible. Again, so a, a lesbian woman writing about how the trans the, the way the Bible was translated aligns with power systems. So when you get when I or when you go deep into text and approach it with this hermeneutic of suspicion, you know what was it saying? To whom was it saying that? In what context? And who benefits from this translation now? Then we break open a a liberatory theology of possibility because even, you know, the deeper we go, the more nuance there is. And it's never as simple as we think it is. You know, God, isn't that easy, (laughs) right? Like God is bigger than we even have words to say. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, thank you. Okay. We're going to just dive into our rapid fire questions and answer them with whatever is in the top of your head in the moment. And I'll do my best not to interject my thoughts. <laughs> okay. If you could untangle one piece of bad theology for everyone forever, what would it be? It would be, uh, everything happens for a reason. Mm. I hate that one. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you, what do you love about Jesus? I love that when Jesus was seeking a place to have the last supper, he asked the man carrying water to find the home. And that man carrying water is a gender nonconforming person because the act of carrying water is not one that is done was done by men. Hmm. What is your favorite verse or story in the Bible? That's really hard. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's really hard. Today, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that just stuck with me. (laughs) What I just said was what was sticking out with me. Mm. Um, I get a lot of comfort through you are fearfully and wonderfully made, too. And Psalm 139. That, that that divine being of creation um, and how that verse can liberate queer people. You are 
fearfully and wonderfully made. You are created exactly as you are. Your wonder, your attraction, your sexuality, your gender, your gender presentation, your your willingness to be who you are in this world, despite all obstacles that are in front of you, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, If you could ask God anything, what would you ask God? What would I ask God? Um, (laughs) uh, I mean, that depends on the day. Mm. How's it got to be like this? Sometimes it's the prayer of what the f***. And sometimes it's the like, what do you need? How do we do this? Absolutely. Okay, shifting gears. What is your go-to comfort food at the moment? Um... I, uh, I have a farm. <laughs> so, um, and I keep bees at the farm and every time I have some of the honey, I feel really connected. Hmm. What do you know for sure? That I am called to do this work at this time in this way. I feel so centered in that right now. Okay. Last question. What is filling your well? Mm, this farm. This farm, this is a farm I'm running with the women in my queer fam. We, um, we weed, we harvest, we plant, we spend a lot of time with our hands in the dirt. And that connects me to my, connects me to my ancestors and to my hope for something that is to come, you know, Mm -hmm. planting something is hoping that something will happen. So just the very nature of farming, is just like, I'm going to do something. I will see a difference in a few days and we will all benefit. And we're just like sharing food abundantly. <laughs> mm, I love that. I love that. What a gift. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Chris, for being here, for your time, for your imagination, for your calls to justice and newness. I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. It's so good to be with you. My friend, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so grateful for you. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. The Lady Preacher podcast is part of a nonprofit called Dancing Pastor Ministries. And you can find us online at dancingpastor.org or join the community by finding us on Facebook at Dancing Pastor Ministries. If you would like to be a part of supporting this podcast, there are many ways you can do that without giving monetarily. You can share our posts on social media, send an episode to a friend, or just leave a review. If you would like to support us financially, you can do so at dancingpastor.org slash give. My friend, you are a gift. Thank you for being here and God bless.